Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number six, Deuteronomy chapter four, the conclusion. So we're going to continue our study of Deuteronomy chapter four. And this is my personal choice, is perhaps one of the ten most critical and central chapters in all the Bible for understanding the God of Israel his attributes and his character, the principles that undergird all of his laws, what happens to those who do obey, what happens to those who rebel, what the proper response of a worshiper ought to be to our redemption and deliverance that he has given to us for free. Now last week I took several minutes to remind you of just why. It is that particularly in our day and age, it's incumbent upon us to recover the word of God and to stop relying on worn out and misguided doctrines and traditions of men that maybe maybe they've served a useful purpose for a, a time in salvation history. But these doctrines have discarded the Torah. They've discarded Israel in favor of intellectual philosophies and the preeminence of Gentiles. Now, one of the most disturbing things that has been taught by Christians since about the time of Constantine, which is around the 4th century AD, is that the attribute of God that Christians most rely on, his grace, came about only at the time of the advent of Jesus Christ. And it simply wasn't in play before then. And therefore, grace is strictly a New Testament phenomenon or dispensation. And this belief shows up primarily in the firmly entrenched church axiom that the greatest choice that every human as regards to our relationship with God is to make is to select between law and grace. That to choose one way is right, the other way is wrong. That law and grace are mutually exclusive, that there is no connection between them. That to choose law is to deny Christ. To choose grace is to accept him. And naturally, since pagans... And atheists have no concept of either of these terms, law and grace. This challenge is rooted primarily as a repudiation of the religion of the Jewish people. Or better, Gentile believers are told to make a choice between the way of the Jews, which is the law, and the way of Christ, which is grace. But is that really the choice that's been set before us? Is it that law is the enemy of grace? And that grace is the opponent of the law? Okay. I ran across a wonderfully articulate statement that puts this dichotomy of law versus grace into, into perspective. And what makes it all the more interesting, I think, is its source. Now, I'm 
taking this out of one of the more progressive, modern, scholarly, and admired commentaries on the Bible, the World Biblical Commentary. And this multi-volume work is recommended by most contemporary evangelical seminaries and Bible colleges as perhaps the ultimate and most up-to-date Bible commentary in existence today because it was only published about 10 years ago. Dwayne Christensen, the editor of the World Biblical Commentary volume on Deuteronomy, is anything but a conservative-leaning person or an apologist for Israel or the Jewish people. His training is from MIT and Harvard. So I don't think I have to say much more. Professor Christensen speaks of an undeniable reality that the Lord has shown him about the Old Testament. And he wants other Christians and serious students of the Bible to benefit from it. So I'm going to quote him here very briefly. He says this, The popular view that identifies law with the Old Testament and gospel with the New Testament will certainly not stand up against a careful reading of the book of Deuteronomy. To understand Deuteronomy, one must recognize God's prior grace to sinners. That is, the priority of gospel, grace, over law in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. Though Deuteronomy stresses that obedience to God's Torah is essential, it even more strongly emphasizes that that obedience is dependent on the grace of God. Let me say this another way. God's grace is contained in his law, and his law demonstrates his grace. His law and his grace are inseparable, and the proper spirit of obedience to and the carrying out of the law is predicated on grace. Speaking of one without the other is like speaking of Yeshua and the Holy Spirit as being mutually exclusive. That Yeshua or the Holy Spirit could exist and function without the one without the other, or that the redemptive process is the exclusive work of one and not the other, is unthinkable. And it would defy every biblical tenet of just who God is. Remove the work of the Holy Spirit, and salvation just can't be. Remove the work of Yeshua the Messiah, and salvation just can't be. We can certainly speak about Yeshua and the Holy Spirit separately. We can study them separately. We can discuss them in isolated fashion, even apply different terms and characteristics. But practically speaking, they can't be separated. God over and over again says that he is echad, one, a divine unity that can't be broken apart. We're treading on very dangerous ground when our doctrines seek to emphasize or even prefer one divine attribute 
over the other. Or to go so far as to say that one could exist and operate and the other cease to exist. Or that one of them no longer has a particularly meaningful function. So it is with law and grace. We certainly can, to a degree, identify the somewhat unique purposes and attributes inherent to each, but we can no more choose between law and grace or law and gospel, as is the almost universally demanded thing of us by the church, than we can choose between the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ. Rabbi Baruch and I were discussing this subject at length some time ago. And I told him that it occurred to me that the mainstream church had become so willing to do exactly that that for a believer to simply determine that he or she will be obedient to God's commands or even to take them at all seriously is now called legalism. Or it expresses a desire to adopt Judaism. Tell me that you haven't been accused of that. Therefore, please take today's opening remarks as a reminder of the context of Deuteronomy, all the Torah for that matter, that grace is at its center. That grace is indispensable at all stages of God's interaction with humans in any age. And that the laws contained herein are, are organically connected to and they're built upon and they're dependent upon God's grace. In God's economy, without grace, there can't be law. Now let's reread some of this marvelous chapter tonight that's so essential to our understanding of the word of God in general. Open your Bibles to Deuteronomy Chapter 4, we're going to start reading at 15. We'll read through to the end. Verse 15. Therefore, watch out for yourselves, since you didn't see a shape of any kind on the day Adonai spoke to you from Horeb and from the fire. Don't become corrupt and make for yourselves a carved image having the shape of any figure, not a representation of a human being, male or female or a representation of any animal on earth, or a representation of any bird that flies in the air, or a representation of anything that creeps along the ground, or a representation of any fish in the water below the shoreline. For the same reason, don't look up at the sky, the sun, the moon, the stars, everything in the sky, and be drawn away to worship and serve them. Adonai, your God, has allotted these things to the peoples under the entire sky. No, Adonai has taken and brought you out of the smelting furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of inheritance for him, as you are today. But Adonai was angry with me on account of you, and he swore I wouldn't cross the Jordan and go into that good land, which Adonai your God is giving to in, giving you to inherit. Rather, I must die in this land and not cross the Jordan, but you are to cross and take possession of that good land. Watch out for yourselves so that you won't make you won't forget the covenant of Adonai, your God, which he made with you. And make yourself a carved image or a representation of anything forbidden to you by Adonai, your God. For Adonai, your God, is a consuming fire. He is a jealous God. 
When you've had children and grandchildren, lived a long time in the land, become corrupt, made a carved image, a representation of something, and thus done what is evil in the sight of Adonai, your God, and provoked him. I call on the sky and the earth to witness against you today that you will quickly disappear from the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. You You will not prolong your days there, but you will be completely destroyed. Adonai will scatter you among the peoples and among the nations to which Adonai will lead you away. You will be left very few in number. There you will serve gods which are the product of human hands made out of wood and stone which can't see or heal, uh, hear or eat or smell. However, from there you will seek Adonai your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and your being. In your distress... When all these things have come upon you in the Ahrit Hayamim, the world to come, you will return to Adonai your God and listen to what he says. Because Adonai your God is a merciful God. He won't fail you, destroy you, or forget the covenant with your ancestors which he swore to them. Indeed, inquire about the past before you were born. Since the day God created human beings on the earth from one end of the heaven to the other, has there ever been anything as wonderful as this? Has anyone heard anything like it? Did any other people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of a fire as you have heard and stayed alive? Or has God ever tried to go and take for himself a nation from the very bowels of another nation by means of ordeals and signs and wonders, war, a mighty hand and outstretched arm and great tears like that of Adonai your God? like he did for you in Egypt before your very eyes. This was shown to you so that you would know that Adonai is God, that there is no other beside him. From heaven he caused you to hear his voice in order to instruct you. On earth he caused you to see his great fire. You heard his very words coming out from the fire because he loved your ancestors, chose their descendants after them, and brought you out of Egypt with his presence and great power in order to drive out ahead of you nations greater and stronger than you so that he could bring you in and give you their land as an inheritance, as is the case today. So know today, establish it in your heart, that Adonai is God in heaven above, on earth below. There is no other. Therefore, you're to keep his laws and his commands, which I'm giving you today so that it will go well with you and with your children after you, so that you will prolong your days in the land that and I, your God, is giving you forever. Then Moses separated three cities on the east side of the Jordan towards the sunrise to which a killer might flee. That is, someone who kills by mistake a person whom he did not previously hate. And upon fleeing to one of these cities, he might live there. The cities were Bethsar in the desert and the flatland for the Reubenites. Remote in Gilead for the Gadites and Golan in Bashan for the uh, Manesha, uh, for Manesha, people of Manesha. This is the Torah which Moses placed before the people of Israel. These are the instructions, laws, and rulings which Moses presented to the people of Israel after they had come out of Egypt, beyond the Jordan River in the valley across from Beit Peor, in the land of Sichon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon, whom Moses and the people of Israel defeated when they came out of Egypt. And they took possession of his land, and the land of Og, king of Bashan, the two kings of the Amorites, 
who were beyond the Jordan towards the sunrise. From Aroer on the edge of the Arnon Valley to Mount Sion, that is Mount Hermon, with all the Arabah beyond the Jordan eastward and all the way to the Dead Sea at the foot of the slopes of Pisgah. Okay, picking up at Deuteronomy 4.21. After his diatribe against idol worship, Moses digresses a little bit, and once again he mourns the fact that even as the Lord's mediator, one of only two mediators that are going to ever exist, he is not going to enjoy the fruits of the promised land, as will his youthful audience, the second generation of the Exodus, because of the actions of the Israelites that prompted his rash behavior. At least that's his story. Therefore, says Moses, take notice of what's happening to me. That is, his being barred from the promised land. And take care that you scrupulously obey every element of the covenant that the Lord has made with Israel so it doesn't happen to you. And this is because since the Lord God is a consuming fire, it's just not possible for anything or anyone to withstand his judgment for wrongdoing. And the Lord is no respecter of persons, so your socioeconomic or political status isn't going to help you. Not even Moses was exempt when it came to trespassing against the Lord. Well, with idol worship still front and center as the cause for Moses' words of caution, he says to be careful not to break this command against all forms of idolatry and therefore perish as a result. Now note that perish doesn't mean utterly destroyed. Okay, It more actually means to be brought to ruin or severely and painfully punished and diminished. Now notice something interesting and involving a principle that we really haven't seen used in this way up until now. In Leviticus, it was a God-ordained requirement that any judicial trial that involved a matter that could result in the death penalty had to result on the testimony of at least two witnesses. Such crimes were, of course, always considered first and foremost of acts of disobedience towards God. And it included the worst offenses, such as murder and adultery and idolatry. Now, I know many of you are prophecy buffs. So here's a tidbit that might interest you. Although we're not going to follow the thread of the two witnesses principle through the Bible and discuss it at length tonight, but it's pretty interesting to do. I do want you to recognize that the mysterious two witnesses who will appear during the time of tribulation in Jerusalem, the two witnesses of the Lord that the Antichrist is going to eventually kill, and then let their bodies lay in the streets of Jerusalem for all the world to see, they are but an extension of the requirement that the Lord set down that there must be at least two witnesses to judge a man 
for destruction, the death penalty. Here in Deuteronomy, Moses invites the two witnesses against Israel as a nation to be what? The heavens and the earth, the sky and the earth. Moses says he calls on the heavens and the earth as to be the two required witnesses against Israel should they commit idolatry. This two witnesses law was an absolute legal must in the Lord's justice system. One that God even imposed upon himself, which is why in the end times, two witnesses is a must since he is sentencing through them all unbelievers to physical and eternal death. Since the punishment for idolatry is what? Death. Not a slap on the wrist. If Israel was to perish, in other words, if they were to be catastrophically chastised as a nation for a consequence of their corporate idolatry, who could possibly be left to be the two witnesses? Moses says... It'll be the heaven and the earth that will be the witnesses against them because the heavens and the earth are subject to God in the same way as is all mankind. So Moses says, it's not if, it's when you Israel start again worshiping idols that all the wonderful promises of land and security and peace are going to be reversed. In verse 27, Moses says that Yehovah will remove Israel from his land and scatter them into other nations, all Gentile nations, of course. And that while not all Israelites are going to be killed in those nations, many will, and many more will simply assimilate, and they'll lose their Hebrew identities. In fact, Moses says only a few are going to survive the exile. And then he says something that I think has been somewhat misconstrued. Moses says that in those Gentile nations, Israel will serve man-made gods, false gods. Now, in general, I think this verse has been taken to mean that the Hebrews will be persecuted and forcefully made to bow down to the gods of those nations. Now, historically speaking, this has indeed happened in a few isolated cases, such as demonstrated in the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace up in Babylon. But in the vast majority of cases, the Hebrews were not forced to worship other gods because they that, that that thinking simply was not the methods used by ancient Middle Eastern conquerors in the biblical era. Rather, the consequence is that the Israelites will do what all people do. They'll assimilate to one degree or another into whatever culture they're exiled. Or, just as ominous, They might not be permitted by that culture's government to openly continue with their well-established 
worship practices of Yehovah as outlined in the Torah, so they'll compromise. So they can kind of go unnoticed. Or perhaps worse, because by definition, they will no longer be residing on God's holy land, Israel, and because the temple was the only place they could go to sacrifice and atone for their sins against God, their spiritual condition, their spiritual state outside of the land would be as if they were defiled at all times and never able to be cleansed. Worse, since they were defiled and impure, this automatically meant they were never able to commune with God. I mean, let me put that horror into perspective for you. It would be as though, as a Christian, you had your salvation yanked from you. You didn't want it removed, but it was anyway. You retained a complete memory for it, what it meant to you, why it is so critical for you to possess. You have a desire to maintain it. You don't intend to lose it. But the consequences of your action were so grievous to God that he turned you over to the forces of evil and separated himself from you. I mean, can you imagine such a thing? Now, we're not going to get in tonight whether that's even possible at all for a believer. All right, and generally speaking, it's not. All right, so relax. But just imagine if it were. That is tantamount to what Moses is saying is going to happen to Israel, and in fact, it did happen. Should they rebel against God, and by the way, the central trespass of their rebellion was going to be idolatry. You know, in my Hebrew Roots of Christianity seminar, I try to relate the state of mind of the Jews when they were up in Babylon. How aware they were of their exile, not just from their homeland of Judah, but also how they were exiled from God himself. They felt like the very air they breathed up there was defiled. The food they ate was impure. That they lived in this perpetual state of uncleanness and there was no escape from it. The women couldn't properly and legally cleanse themselves from their monthly cycles. The men couldn't cleanse themselves actually after sexual intimacy with their wives as was required by the law. They couldn't obey the commandment to make the three pilgrimages each year to Jerusalem for those God-ordained festivals. They couldn't tithe. The priests couldn't teach. They couldn't perform the sacrificial rituals. So the Jews couldn't offer a sacrifice of atonement when they sinned. They were in hell. Yet Moses said, rescue and restoration is possible for God's people. He says that if, as difficult as it might be to do in their circumstances of exile, if, he says, you will repent, if you'll seek God with all of your heart and soul, remember in the Bible the word heart is synonymous with what? Our mind. 
He will allow Israel to rekindle that relationship with him. And this is because, as it says in verse 31, another attribute of God that operates at the other end of the scale from his wrath is his compassion and his mercy. He says that on a corporate or a national level, he will not let Israel be wiped out as an identifiable people. And he will not forget his covenant promises that he made with Israel's fathers. I mean, oh man, is this central to our understanding of the Bible? First, saying your fathers is just another way of saying the patriarchs, meaning Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So this has Moses saying that Yehovah will not fail Israel, nor will he let Israel as a people be completely wiped out. And that he will not forget about the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant made with Abraham and then handed down to Isaac and then handed down to Jacob. Now, second of all, let's understand what the meaning of this concept of the Lord not forgetting the Abraham covenant is. To forget a covenant means to abolish it, not to in, or, 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 or to invalidate it. Now, let that sink in for a minute. Over and over in the Old Testament, the Lord says the same thing. He will never forget. He will never invalidate his covenant with Abraham. Yeshua, of course, backs that up in Matthew 5.17 when he says he didn't come to invalidate it. He didn't come to abolish or forget the Torah and its contents, which is where the covenants are all established. Now let me say that again. In Hebrew thinking, to forget a promise or a covenant is to abolish it. It's to abrogate it. To remember a promise or a covenant is simply to validate it, to uphold it, to stick to it. Particularly as concerns God, forgetting and remembering has nothing in the world to do with his memory or his ability to recall something. Now, I told you that Deuteronomy 4 is just crammed with important stuff. So here's another important concept that just kind of whizzes right by us. Well, you and I just read this passage and say, okay, so God says that since he's compassionate, that wherever it is they're scattered, he's going to allow the Israelites to seek him out. Well, that's great, and that's pretty straightforward sounding. But it's only straightforward for us because we understand that there exists only one God. The Hebrews of this era did not believe that. Just as you and I wouldn't ever argue the point that the world consists of a multitude of various people groups, black people, brown people, white people, Asians, so on, so would the Hebrews simply take as common knowledge that the spiritual world consisted of a multitude of gods, each of them dedicated to one or another of the various people groups and nations of the world. Thus, 
It's only that Yehovah is Israel's particular God. So in Deuteronomy, Moses is, for the first time that I can detect in the Torah, beginning to make it crystal clear that Yehovah is the only God in all existence, not just Israel's only God. You see the difference? So Moses is telling Israel that when they're scattered all over the earth for for their idolatry, that they can take comfort in knowing that their God will be wherever they are. That unlike the universal thought of that era, the Hebrews will not have to switch allegiance to the God or the gods of whatever nation they wind up in in order to have some God or another to help them out. That God's power and presence is everywhere on this earth. He is not restrained by territorial boundaries as are the non-existent gods of the pagan nations. Now look, this was probably as difficult a thing for Israel to just immediately swallow as truth, because it ran counter to what at that time passed for common sense, as it is initially for new Christians to accept that a divine attribute of God called the Holy Spirit has suddenly and invisibly taken up residence inside of them. That's a tough one. On the one hand, reliable church authorities tell us that that, of course, is the case. But on the other, how do you prove it? How do you verify it tangibly? The only way, of course, is through time and experience with the Lord that begins with a very simple faith. So let's try and grasp what a revolutionary concept that Moses was talking about here in Deuteronomy. But let's also try and grasp that another part of what Moses was saying was ominously prophetic. That in the future, Israel, despite everything, would rebel against God by means of idolatry. They would be ejected from the land and scattered. They would be killed and put under subjugation in Gentile nations. They would be put under societal pressures to worship other gods. And many, if not most, Israelites would succumb to one element of this or another. You know, really Moses puts this in such general terms that only hindsight enables us to even validate the truth in it. It's not that Israel would do this on one occasion and then God would respond with exile, but that what is being introduced to Israel is a principle that was going to be repeated in regular cycles. Israel would rebel on idolatry. God would each time respond the same way with exile from their homeland. But as always, Moses brings a balance to the situation. Restoration will occur just as surely as Israel will rebel. And beginning in verse 31, Moses says that the grounds for this hope of restoration and reconnecting with God that Israel should always hope for is twofold. 
First, it was because the Lord loved the patriarchs. And second, because God is inherently merciful. And from here, Moses gives a sermon about this radical concept that Yehovah is the only God that exists anywhere. Now this sermon that introduces Israel to monotheism says that the proof that there is only one God and that his name is Yehovah is contained in history itself. That from the time that the earth was formed until today, he says, what society or culture has ever had such things happen to it as has happened to Israel? What society has ever actually heard the voice of God? Not some, just some priests claiming that they heard a God but rather the general population were eyewitnesses to it happening. When has there ever been a God who set apart a selected group of people from the world in general, gave them a law and a covenant, brought down supernatural destruction on their oppressors, like in Egypt, and then led them by means of a visible cloud, and pillar of fire that was available not just for Israel to see it, but for anybody within close proximity to see it as well. Folks, let me explain something to you that perhaps you haven't considered. You know why Israel is looked upon as so strange and weird and threatening from the moment of their sanctification and separation right on up until today? Moses is telling you why in Deuteronomy. It's because, in fact, they are different. They are different. They have had their path set upon an entirely unique history. And upon an entirely different set of morals and principles that run counter to any other society ever. Humans just can't stand diversity. We can't stand difference. Despite the absurd and disingenuous academic worship of it today. At the same moment that the world is calling for an acceptance of diversity and tolerance and multiculturalism, every effort is being made to pressure everybody into being the same. My goodness, like no other time in history, we are witnessing the greatest effort to even erase the distinction between male and female. To pound everybody into the same mold. For everybody to accept the same philosophies and morals. To have one world dominating body to govern all nations under the same rules and laws. And anyone who refuses to submit to this system is regarded as a renegade, unintelligent, a hater, something to be stomped out and eradicated like an unwelcome cockroach.
Moses is claiming that no one had ever been in Israel's position and no one has ever seen or heard of such perfect laws and commands to live by than what was presented to them by God. What he said, what, what he hasn't said yet, is that the world is going to hate Israel for this. And that the world, as led by their own evil inclinations at Satan's direction, is never going to stop trying to rid itself of these strange people simply because they're different. Well, wake up, Christians. The Jews aren't alone anymore. You have become a target for re-education or extermination. You're too different to live side by side with everyone else. And how has the church generally responded to this challenge? Pretty much in the same way the Jews eventually did. To blend in. To look more like the world than the world itself. The Jews worked hard to dissolve the separation between them and the other inhabitants of this planet. Jews who immigrated from Europe as early as the 1800s gave up not only their Jewish identities in many cases, but also their family names so that they could just vanish into a sea of Gentiles. In our time, Christians by the thousands, entire denominations in mass, are giving up the virgin birth, the deity of Jesus, the word of God, any vestige of separateness and differentness from the world. Christians by the millions are accepting and celebrating homosexuality, same-sex marriage, enjoying our freedom to choose abortion. Christians don't want our true faith history, just like the Jews didn't want theirs for a time. We just want our firing charts and our social group of friends and activities that's all based around a church building. Of course, I'm speaking in general. This isn't every case, but it has at least become quite the norm, at least in my lifetime. The rush to to abandon our Savior is at such a fever pitch in Europe, and boy, is it bound to spread. England is leading the way as a group of now offers what is called anti-baptism certificates. So that a Christian can officially renounce all allegiance to God. Have his name officially removed from every kind of list that identifies him as a Christian, and then you receive a certificate as legal proof of your repudiation of Christianity. Within the past year alone, the past 12 months, over 100,000 people have done it. In verse 39, Moses makes the definitive statement. Know therefore this day and keep in mind that Jehovah is God in heaven above and on earth below. There is no other. There it is. This statement marks a turning point in the history of mankind. 
And next Moses says that the reason that you want to believe and observe this command is so that it'll go well with you, well with your children, and that's so you can remain in God's care on his land. If for no other reason, Israel, obey God for your own selfish reasons that you'll survive and prosper. Moses says, don't do this because God needs it. It's because you need it. Don't do this because God gets some benefit out of it. It's you that benefits. Nothing's changed. Salvation is not and never has been for God's benefit. It's for us. God doesn't lose because so many fail to take advantage of his free gift. Those who don't see the truth lose. Moses ends this portion of his address to the people by officially naming the cities of refuge, those sanctuary cities, that are going to be established on the east side of the Jordan. And they are going to be located in territory that Reuben and Gad and then half of the tribe of Manasseh is going to uh, inhabit. And these are cities that will be owned and administered by the Levites for the sake of the tribes who've chosen to live and operate over in the Transjordan. Now recall that a city of refuge is a place where a man who has killed another man can go and reside and be safe. He may not be harmed if he escapes to any one of those three cities. Also recall that this law does not cover the crime of murder. And a murderer is not permitted to take up residence there. The primary crime that these cities are set aside for is what we might call manslaughter. Or the unintended or accidental killing of a human. Now it's not those... It's not that those who come to a city of refuge are there so that they can avoid prosecution. In fact, they will be brought to a certain place for a trial. And if they're determined not guilty of murder, then they can go back to that city of refuge and remain there in safety. The inhabitants of a sanctuary city are not in prison but they are under protective custody. In fact, they were actually free to leave those cities any time they chose. Problem is that they were being protected against the kinsman redeemer, the Goel Hadam, whose traditional duty it was to avenge the death of the relative who killed that person, that family member, even if it was accidental. But if the killer chose to live outside the protection of the sanctuary city, then he became fair game. And the kinsman redeemer could extract his blood revenge without consequence. Now to end chapter 4, I just want to make a quick comment on verses 44 through 49. Now, there is some disagreement as to whether these particular verses ought to not be the end of chapter 4, but probably should be the first words of chapter 5. Otherwise, the whole thing seems awfully redundant. I'd like to offer a different possibility. 
Verses 1 through 43 were like an introduction or a foreword to what Moses was about to say beginning in Deuteronomy 4, 44. And then essentially it would continue on for the next several chapters. In other words, perhaps in modern jargon, we could have Moses saying, now, after I've just given to you as a background all of this, here is finally the teaching I want you to have. I've created the context. Now we can go forward. So indeed, I would agree with those who say that while the translation is perfectly fine, chapter 5 probably should have begun earlier at what in our Bibles is usually designated as Deuteronomy 4, verse 44. Now before you accuse me and start trying to change the Bible, okay, please just remember that the Bible never had chapter marks. Old Testament or no. Scholars have added them many centuries later simply as a means to help study and communicate the various passages. The same goes, by the way, with the verse numbering. It was an arbitrary system and nothing wrong with that because it didn't change anything. But because in modern literature, paragraphs and chapters do have significant meaning, usually indicating that one scene ends and another one begins, or one thought pattern ends and another one begins, it can have an impact if we apply that same type of literary criteria to the Bible. What I'm telling you is this. Try not to read the Bible according to paragraphs and chapters as though it was a modern book. It doesn't operate that way. All too often, a certain train of thought in the Bible simply continues from the last verse of one chapter right on to the first verse of the next one. Okay. But because it seems to be interrupted because we've got a new paragraph or even a new chapter, that in our minds, we tend to end the context of what was said up to that point all right, and try to create a whole new context from scratch. This is a big mistake. And unfortunately, that's probably the way the vast majority of believers, Bible students, Sunday school teachers, and maybe even some college professors actually read and teach the Bible. We'll take up Deuteronomy chapter 5 next week.